0: Welcome again. Um, this week it's journalism connecting the dots. I told you last week we'd we'd bring all those ideas that we talked about there back together here and that's what we're going to try to do. Revelation. Last week we talked about journalism as a ser- search for truth and I shared a, a little of my story uh, of search for truth, my background as uh, radio and television journalist, my forty years as Pennsylvania broadcast editor for The Associated press and we looked at some basic principles of good journalism and then we talked about the role of reason in our thinking this week we 'll try to use journalism to connect the dots we 'll take a look at revelation, not the book of revelation, but revelation as a revealing of something and we 'll talk about faith. We'll see how Jesus Christ is the answer to what we're seeking when we are searching for the truth. Wait just a minute here while I try it again. There we go, okay. The biblical view of knowledge starts from a different premise from what the Greeks assumed. Okay, For them... The source of knowledge, uh, what we learned last week, was internal. It was based on human reason. And the Greeks, or the the Gentiles, as the scripture refers to them, approached knowledge by starting with reason, and then they tried to make sense of what they saw around them. Uh, they considered the world around them, and then they tried to make sense of that with their reasoning power. Uh, their worldview, their Their understanding of the world arose out of their human reasoning. It grew out of their internal sources. It did not come to them from outside their world. And this is where the journalist, remember the annoying journalist, once again asks, How do you know that what you have reasoned, what you think you understand, really is the truth? How do you even know whether there is such a thing as absolute truth? Our postmodern society says there's no such thing as absolute truth. But that in itself is a nonsense statement. (laughs) It's a statement that's made as an absolute truth. In other words, the postmodern thinkers say it's absolutely true that there is no absolute truth. And once again, the journalist asks, well, how how do you know that even that's true? It's a question that, for them, has no answer. The biblical view of knowledge answers those questions. It doesn't start from human reason. It's the alternative solution to the widely accepted humanistic view of knowledge that puts man at the center of thought and reality. The, the biblical view puts God at the center of thought and reality. Uh, the apostle Paul emphasized God's sovereign relation to the world and knowledge, and Paul called on Christians to cast down knowledge that exalts itself against God. That's a direct quote, by the way. Paul taught all Christians to make all thought captive to Christ. I got ahead of myself by one. There we go. Uh, and thus he challenged Christians to think differently from non Christians. So, how do we begin to think differently from non Christians? Well, first we have to understand the importance of presuppositions. And I think uh, Chip Hard talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago when he was here. Uh, presuppositions, prior assumptions. Any system of, of knowledge has to have a starting point. Okay? And, and those points have presuppositions, things that we already believe. They provide the point where we, we start our thinking and knowing. They also determine the method by which we attain our knowledge, and they determine the goal to which our knowledge is directed. For example, you are here because you believe you can think, that you can reason, that when you read things, they may or, well, maybe not make sense to you, but that you can think, you can understand. You can learn. That's a presupposition. Okay? Secularists, for example, have presuppositions about the universe. They view it as a closed, finite system controlled by cause and effect as described by the scientific method. They believe that at its, uh, as its starting point, The world operates on the basis of pure chance. Uh, Everything they experience is interpreted in light of that presupposition. Christians begin with the transcendent and personal God of the Bible. In the beginning, God. They assume that God exists and reveals himself to us from outside of our world, because that's what he has told us he has done. That's the key. He is the prerequisite for understanding all of existence and meaning. Christians believe that that God is self-sufficient and the maker and sustainer of creation. How do we know? Because he has said so. We believe he has said so. He's the author and interpreter of of truth. He's the one that gives meaning to all things. And he alone, he's the expert, he alone can say whether there is such a thing as truth or absolute truth because he stands outside of and apart from his creation and yet he enters into the creation in a personal form and communicates with us what he says is absolutely true for all people at all times. Now, all people have presuppositions. We, We can't think without them. Presuppositions are the lenses through which we view the world. We are not neutral observers or witnesses of this world that we live in. What appears to be fact can have completely different meanings to different people. An atheist biologist, for example, sees the human body in terms of naturalistic evolution. A Christian biologist sees that same body as a result of God's creative genius. And the journalist asks, how do you know? How do you know which understanding is the correct one? Which is the one that's true? In fact, how can you be sure which of those presuppositions is true? Could they both be wrong? Could they both be right? 50-50. The answer to the question has to come from somebody who is outside, the outside expert, the one that stands outside and apart from this world and yet can say absolutely and definitively that one is true and the other is false, or that both are false, or that both are true. In other words, the only way to know for sure what is the truth or even whether there is absolute truth, is for someone of authority to come into our world from outside, some authority who is in a position to know and can tell us what that answer is. And the only one who qualifies as such an authority is the God of the Bible. So, Human knowledge comes to us in four ways. Reason is what we think, what we understand with our minds. Sensory experience is what we see, smell, touch, feel, taste, hear, five senses. <clears throat> Intuition is what we sense or feel apart from the physical senses. Mothers have that. Yeah. Much to the chagrin of little boys who want to do things that mom doesn't want them to. But that's another story. Okay. <laughs> the other thing is is Authority. Information from those who are in a position to know the experts. Yeah. Huh. None of these four ways by itself provides an adequate basis for all of knowledge. None of them can prove with certainty the knowledge even within its own sphere. Only someone from outside space and time can absolutely validate our knowledge. And that's why the Christian approach to knowledge is so different. The Christian presuppositional system depends on a personal, transcendent God as necessary for our thinking. By granting that God exists and has authoritatively revealed himself, we are able to rise above mere human opinion and achieve certainty. Only by making God our starting point can we truly make sense of the world of particulars, things that we see around us. Without God as the starting point, we can only assign a relative meaning to the world of particulars, the the facts as we see them, because our knowledge is limited and our perspective is finite without God, we can't trust our reason, our sensory experience, our intuition, or any other method by which we think we know. Now, Christian epistemology, that's the study and science of, of how we know things, epistemology. Christian epistemology finds in God the ultimate source of being. In other words, where we came from, and it finds in him ultimate meaning, why we're here. And it's <clears throat> only from the Christian perspective that we can say anything has any value, why we or anything is worth anything. It's only from the Christian perspective that we can ultimately interpret why, what all these facts really mean. So in presupposing, or in believing in God, Christians assert that objective truth does exist. God himself is the basis of truth. Truth starts with him. Not just because his words are true, although they are, but because he is the very God of truth. Look at Isaiah sixty-five sixteen for that. In fact, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christians aren't left in doubt over whether relativity and chance are in control of, real, of reality. Christians can aggressively challenge all truth claims that exclude God. If God's ultimate, all thinking without reference to him is vain and idolatrous. That is, it's focused on ourselves or on something other than God. And God says such thinking must be reoriented so that we understand from God's point of view. True wisdom, he says, begins with the fear of the the Lord, the reverent, reverential awe of God. Proverbs seven. <clears throat> we can make, understand, and believe such claims because God has revealed himself to us, to mankind. The word revelation in the Bible means self-disclosure, To reveal means to to uncover, to unveil what was previously hidden, what was previously unknown. And God tells us what he wants us to know about himself and his creation. And we can receive and understand this revelation because he has made us in his image and has given us, as opposed to the rest of creation, the ability to receive and understand his truth. The Bible tells us that God chose to reveal himself to us by his grace in order that we may believe in, trust him, and obey him. God desires to have us know him, not to, Intellectually, as an abstract fact, but by experience, to, to, to know him personally. And because of that, his revelation never consists merely of data that we are just simply to believe intellectually. <clears throat> God's truth, his revelation, is indicative, it tells us about him and about reality. But his revelation is also imperative. It demands a response from us. His revelation is ultimately aimed at enabling us to know him, inspiring us to worship him, and leading us to obey him. God reveals himself to us by two means general and specific revelation. General revelation is truth that God reveals to all people, regardless of the time, the place, the culture, or other factors. Look at Romans 1 on this. He reveals himself through nature, through the beauty and the majesty of the the created universe. Um, He reveals himself through men's minds, specifically, our consciences, telling us right from wrong. And he reveals himself through history, the rise and fall of nations and rulers, and through moral principles such as justice and law. The special revelation is additional information about God that man needs in order to be forgiven of sin Saved from the punishment for sin and restored to fellowship with God. A special revelation comes in two forms Scripture and through the Son of God, incarnate in human form. Jesus is seen as the ultimate, the supreme revelation of God in our history. He is the Word. He's the message of God, summed up in divine and yet human form. We'll talk about that. He shows us what God is like. He taught with authority. He performed miracles. He forgave sins. He died and rose again from the dead to defeat the power of uh, sin and death. Excuse me. And he so identified himself with God that he even used the greatest name of God, I Am, when speaking of himself. Special revelation is also scripture. It's the word of God in written form. It records the words and the events of history from God's point of view. In fact, I, I refer to the, to the Bible as, as God's newspaper newspaper. It's the story of what he's doing on earth. And it's good news. The gospel. (laughs) Okay? People ask me, they said, Well, how did you deal with writing news stories like what's going on in our world for all those years and not become jaded? And I said, Because I know how the story ends. I've got the newspaper, and I've got the good news. Let me tell you about it. Okay? So the Bible provides the interpretation and the commentary that gives all of these events meaning, significance, importance. Uh, scripture ties that meaning and significance to the person of God through Christ, thereby providing the context for our understanding. The written word does not merely contain information about God, but it actually reveals God himself to people in personal encounter in their lives. They read the scripture and are transformed by it. It brings people to faith in God through Christ, who is God's Word in the flesh. So that brings us to the role of faith. <clears throat> All people have faith, faith is the practical expression of our world view. It arises about, out of what we believe to be true about the world that's around us. Faith determines how we live in the world. It ranges from natural phenomenon like friction and gravity and the rising of the sun and, uh, to, to our belief in the, or unbelief, in the unseen, what we can't see. The unseen might include things such as knowledge in general or personal relationships or belief or disbelief in God himself. And our decisions and our actions arise from what we believe about our world and our experiences in the world I believe if I jump off the roof of this building, I'm going to get hurt. Okay? <clears throat> in recent times, though, in secular circles, faith has been seen as divorced from knowledge. We say we believe in what we experience with our senses, but what we can't see, we say we just have to accept By faith. So faith becomes separated from knowledge. Faith is often considered to be something that is unknowable or beyond reason. And that's illustrated by the dictionary definition of faith. If you look up the word faith in the dictionary, it will say something like, Unquestioning belief, unquestioning belief, that does not require proof or evidence. Oh, yeah? Or unquestioning belief in God, in religious statements and the like. See, You can't prove that. The key here is the assumption that what is taken by faith cannot be tested. It can't be known. It can't be proved. You just have to accept it without question. The Danish thinker Søren Kierkegaard spoke of a leap of faith. He said, as far as religion goes, there is just so much that we can know, and the rest just has to be accepted by blind faith. He spoke of this as a A leap of faith. It amounted to believing what we could not really know, but only what we could experience. But that always leaves us in doubt. We never have any insurance with that definition. We can't be sure of what we accept by faith. It may all be a lie. You make the leap, and there's nothing there. It may not really exist. Maybe God doesn't really exist. We just can't know for sure. There's Blaise Pascal, French philosopher, and a devout Christian. He he dealt with with a dilemma with a story that has come to be called Pascal's Wager. And it goes something like this. We saw this similar chart to this. Um, Dr. Doctor Lamb, I think, brought well, that, one of the other speakers this summer. Okay, Here, here's how it goes. Okay, You say there is no God, and I say, yes, there is. So we both live according to our beliefs. You know, you live it up. Your life is full of what Christians would call sinful things, maybe, And I live a life according to the teachings of the Bible, according to the teachings of Christ. I try to avoid what the Bible calls sin. In the end, if you're right, if there is no God, you've lost nothing, and you cease to exist. And I've had a good life, And I cease to exist. But if I'm right, if God really is there, and if he really does hold us accountable for our decisions and our actions, then you have lost everything and and are condemned because of your lifestyle. Because you've rejected God and his ways. I, on the other hand, have gained everything And I have salvation and eternal life. But this doesn't solve our dilemma either. Because it reduces all of life to a giant bet, a giant wager, a a giant gamble. There's no assurance. Hope is blind. It's just wishful thinking. Life is characterized by doubt and uncertainty. And so such is faith that arises from internal sources. We can never be sure that our thinking is right. There's no way to prove that that what we accept by faith ultimately is true. We can only hope that we're right. And when other people challenge us, we have no real defense for our faith. All we can say is, well, this is what I choose to believe, and this is what works for me, and I can't be sure that all of this Christian stuff really is true. <clears throat> the biblical answer to faith solves the problem. In the Greek and in the King James Version of the Bible, Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as the substance of, of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. You have to go back to the Greek or the King James, which got the translation right, not the NIV, which doesn't really hit it. This definition, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, like the secular ones, speaks of hope and things unseen. But the key to the scriptural definition is in the word substance, And evidence. And we learn two things from this. Number one, substance means that there actually is someone or something to believe in. This podium has substance. You can see it, I can see it, I'm leaning on it, I'm touching it. It's got substance to it. Evidence means there is something real and knowable to point to regarding that substance. Both of these are external in origin to the individual. They're presented through revelation by God, and their very definitions indicate that they are knowable and verifiable. So people today may use the word faith to, ex- to indicate what's possible but not certain, but the Bible always links faith with what is assuredly, certainly true. Faith, or, or believing, is more than just subjective effort. The object of our faith is how God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So This is what's so important for the journalist. It moves us from the area of theories to the realm of reality. Jesus is not just a theoretical concept, an idea, a creation of our minds. He actually lived in human form on this earth. People saw him, they heard him. They walked with him, they ate with him, they watched him perform miracles, they learned from him, and ultimately, they witnessed him crucified and risen again from the dead. And all of this is set down in the form of historical record, complete with the direct quotes of eyewitnesses, not simply a theory, It actually occurred in our world, in our space and time. And the question is, do you accept the historical record? And do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Do you accept the evidence about the substance, Jesus Christ? Now, the root of the word faith in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word aman, and it indicates firmness, certainty. The verb form means to be certain of something. Faith, according to the Old Testament understanding, is rooted in the person of God himself, and it's more than just strong belief. It indicates to us what's real. God reveals himself to be faithful, unchanging, Rooted in eternity, but also active in our world, in our space, and our time. And because he is who he says he is and what he says he is, we can commit ourselves to him. Abraham believed God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 verse. Genesis 15. By contrast, Israel's behavior is being released. uh, 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 Sorry. By contrast, Israel's behavior after being released from slavery in Egypt helps us understand the nature of unbelief. God had revealed to the Israelites unmistakable evidence of his reality and his power by delivering them in dramatic fashion, from the control of Pharaoh in Egypt. But then Israel refused to obey God and go in and take the promised land that he led them to, and therefore God brought upon them punishment as a consequence of their actions, which were rooted in doubt and unbelief. Remember, we can't go in there. The land is full of giants, yeah? Faith is rooted, God's definition of biblical faith in the Old Testament is not simply intellectual acceptance of physical, even miraculous evidence. It's rooted in response and obedience to God himself. Faith, even in the Old Testament, engages the total person, what he senses, what he experiences, what he believes, what he knows, and therefore, what he does. It's expressed in perception, his worldview and action, how he lives. Lack of faith is expressed in rejection of God and in disobedience. The root word for faith in the New Testament, in the Greek, is pistis. And Pistis in its related forms and terms deal with the relationships established and maintained by one's trust in what he believes. Originally, Pistis was linked with formal contracts between parties. But in time, the definition, at least in secular terms, expanded to speak of trust in the Greek gods. And later in the Hellenistic era, Faith in God came to mean theoretical conviction about a particular doctrine. It was a conviction expressed in the way that you lived. Now, the, the, the New Testament retains that range of meanings, but it refines and reshapes them. In the New Testament, the word pistis, faith, means to be convinced of something, to entrust yourself to it. It portrays a person committing himself totally to another person, specifically to Jesus Christ. And Jesus explains by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's Jesus who's the focus of the new life and our Christian faith. And faith in him means commitment to him. Now, returning to the idea of faith in terms of substance and evidence, the Gospels record many signs and miracles, just as God revealed himself in the Old Testament. And yet both Israel and Jesus' disciples weren't always moved by what they saw. When Jesus was crucified, for example, the disciples' faith melted away, at least for a time. The disciples on the Emmaus road told about how, told you know, about how their faith had come crashing down because Jesus had been put to death after the crucifixion. Peter went back to fishing, thinking that his faith in Jesus may have been in vain. So faith did not always come through an observation of miracles. The Israelites saw God's marvelous deliverance of their nation from, Israel, from Egypt, and yet they didn't trust him to lead them into the Promised Land. They were afraid of the giants that the 12 spies found they saw there. And despite all the healings and the feedings and the walking on water and raising of people from the dead, even Jesus' own disciples failed to have faith in what he told them would come next. In the New Testament, the New Testament teaches that faith comes as people put their faith and trust, put their trust in Jesus. And over and over, John links faith with true life. To the Apostle John, believing is an active, continuing trust in Jesus. Paul links faith to obedience in the example of Abraham, James, James, Urged people to conduct themselves in ways that demonstrated their confession of faith. He said that we may say that we have uh, faith, but it has to be worked out in what we actually do, the way we actually live. Otherwise, he said, our faith is just meaningless lip service. That brings us to the final dot. Let's begin to tie some of these ideas together now. And to do that, we turn to the Gospel of John. Now, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bring us the story of Jesus and his earthly ministry. But John's Gospel is unique in its purpose. It not only shows us who Jesus is, but it brings together the whole understanding of truth, reason, and revelation in a way that's different from the other three, the synoptic gospels. We call them that because they're a synopsis of God or a summary of God's, uh, Jesus' life and, and ministry. The first question is, who is this Jesus that we should believe so completely in, in him and follow him? The answer to that is in the word that John chooses to describe Jesus. It's the word logos. Yep. Greek word logos. So let's read the verses 1 through 4 and then 10 through 12. Keep in mind that in this in verse 1, particularly, in the three places, it says the word, logos. And John's using the Greek word for it there. So John 1.1. one logos. 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word, logos, was with God. And the word, logos, was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things through him came into being, and without him nothing became or came into being that was made. In him, the Logos, was life, and that life was the light of men. Drop down to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through or by him, and the world didn't know him. Verse 11, he came to his own people, that is, the Israelites, and his own people, the Israelites, didn't receive him. Verse 12, but to as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God to the ones believing Pistus in his name. Now, we need to study a little bit of Greek vocabulary. First, the word logos in the Greek carried many ideas and shades of meaning, and I've listed them for you in your handout uh, so that you wouldn't have to copy them all down. And you'll notice that many of the definitions of logos are action words. They carry <clears throat> some sort of meaning that comes out of action. Logos, therefore implies a certain amount of action. It's not just a passive idea. The Spanish translation for the word is verbal. And that really captures the meaning. Because a verb is the word in a sentence that conveys action. And so it is with the word logos. Logos. The Greeks used the word logos to mean three important concepts. One was the spoken word, what we usually think of as the definition of word. But to the Greeks, the word logos, okay, back to think last week, also meant the idea that was still in the human mind. It's the idea of reason. Remember in part one of our study last week, we talked about reason. The Greeks tried to understand the world from their own reason, from their internal sources. And the whole idea of what was in their minds, this reason they called logos. So we have the idea of logos being a spoken word plus reason. And that's something that we can put down on paper or hear with our ears and understand with our minds. And the Greeks also applied the word logos to the universe. Remember last week? This is the really interesting part. Remember we said that the Greeks believed that there was a force beyond this world that ties all meaning and all principles together, a force that makes the world go. They didn't know what it was, but they believed that it was the driving force behind life itself. And they called this rational principle, this principle of reason that governs all things, Logos. So, what we have is the spoken word that we use to convey the ideas that come out of our reason. And the Greeks saw beyond this a force that governs all of life and gives it meaning. They call this Logos. And the reason we communicate our reasoning Uh, uh, We, 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 I'm sorry. We reason and we communicate our reasoning, our understanding with words. Words are powerful. Words carry meaning. We can't think or communicate in any depth without words. And the Greeks called all of this logos. It's what makes the world go. Well, that's fine for the Gentiles who were familiar with Greek culture. Remember, in Jesus' day, the Greek Empire had given way to the Roman Empire, and the world was still very much influenced by the ideas of Greek culture. The Romans were people of action. They gave us principles regarding or governing our way of life. But the rest of thinking and understanding and ideas came out of the Greek culture. God's 500-year plan. Right? And the Jews of Jesus day were also very much influenced by Greek culture. They lived in the midst of Greek culture and even though the scriptures were written in Hebrew and were and they were taught Hebrew understanding and language, they had a dual understanding. Religiously they were Jewish, but in everyday secular life They were part of the Greek culture. And so the Jews also used the word logos. To them, it was a way of referring to God and his word. After all, God spoke to the Jews individually, through the prophets, through the scripture. God had revealed himself to the Jews as a personal God, who comes in from outside, communicates with his people, has a purpose for them. That purpose is to be his missionaries to all the other people of the world, to the nations, the Gentiles, whom he had scattered in Genesis 11 after the episode at the Tower of Babel. And after scattering the people, he began in Genesis 12 to call them back to himself, beginning with Abraham. And so this communication with the people he had created, both Jew and Gentile, the Jews referred to as Logos. God spoke to people, his chosen people, his missionaries, and to the people who would turn to him. And the Jews used the word Logos as the term for this. So, the Apostle John uses the term Logos in a way that's meaningful to both Jews and Greeks. The result is a, a powerful new way of understanding truth and reality. John takes the Greek idea of the spoken word plus reason plus this unknown force that makes the world go round and he links that with the Jewish idea of a personal God who comes in from outside communicates with his people personally through the spoken and written word and by action and God you, and John uses these two major themes together to point to Jesus. John uses the term logos to link Jesus, the Son, with the Father, God. The Son was distinct from the Father. He was with God, as John writes in the first sentence. And yet the Son was also part of the Father. The Word was God. So the word logos, as John uses it in this passage, is rich and it's full of meaning. It links Christ with creation, the physical world as the one who created it links Christ with the purpose and intent of God, the father it links Christ with the verbal and the written word of God. It links Christ with the glory, the fame of God. It links Christ with the gospel proclamation of the good news from God. It links Christ with, with the work of God. It links Christ with the self-disclosure of God. And John makes clear that not only is Christ linked to God in these ways, he is actually the embodiment of God in these ways. John says the the word became flesh and lived among us. This is the ultimate revelation of God. He stands apart from his creation, outside of his creation, and yet he enters into his creation in word and action. In Espanol, es de verbo, verb. God had spent years telling man about and demonstrating his reality as his authority, his power, his love, his his goodness, his righteousness, and more. And all those words of the Old Testament message come together in Christ. The intent and purposes of God that um, that had been communicated verbally, both in spoken and written word and in general revelation in history, became embodied specifically in the person of Christ. This unique self-disclosure of God in history enables us to understand with our senses and reason what is defined by God as the ultimate truth of all that exists. It's the missing piece in man's search for truth and final certainty and faith. When the disciples asked Jesus to show them the Father, that is, to show them God, he replied, He who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Jesus is the proof of the existence and activity of God. And we understand what God's like by looking at Jesus. We understand what God's thinking and saying by listening to Jesus. We understand what God's doing by watching Jesus in our space, in our time, Past, present, and future. And we understand what God is like uh, that way. And and the link between truth and history, therefore, becomes significant. Man's search for ultimate truth and, and the confirmation of truth stops at the boundary of our space and time. No one in our space and time can say authoritatively what truth is. We can always ask the journalist question, how do you know? But God communicates first in general revelation in nature, and then in verbal revelation, the written or spoken word, and ultimately in Christ, this special revelation. And that transcends our space-time boundaries because God's not bound by his creation, not bound by space and time. He's the creator. He operates both within and beyond creation of space and time. He can tell us with certainty and authority what really is true. And because God always exists, he stands behind that truth, giving it validity for all time and eternity. So reason and faith, therefore, are dependent upon God's revelation of Logos. For the Christian, then, knowledge of the truth is possible because God has revealed it and Christ is the embodiment of it. Christ is the empirical, the physical evidence of what is true. Christ is the real point in history, the substance at which Our reason, our minds and our senses, our physical senses, can connect with certainty of knowledge and truth. Christ is the answer that the Sophists and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and so many others were looking for but didn't find. Greeks, of course, because they predated Jesus but they sought the answer from internal sources rather than from God's external revelation. And because of this connection of faith with substance and evidence um, presented by that substance, the Christian faith is not a wager. It's not a gamble. It's not a blind leap into the darkness. Christ as Logos is the word come in the flesh, incarnate in the substance of what we have been hoping for, And the evidence of what we couldn't see, that is, truth and ultimate answers. Faith, therefore, is in something real, something concrete, something tangible, that is, in Christ himself and through him in God. And we have the historical record of all of that in written form in God's newspaper, the Bible. So going back finally to pistis, faith or belief, and combining that with logos and various prepositions and articles in the Greek language, we find that it indicates the way a person comes to faith. We come through the word, through the logos, through Christ. The realm in which faith operates is in the word logos. It's in Christ. We have faith in Christ and we have faith through Christ. And the object and source of our faith is the word that has become flesh, Christ. Our faith is not in reason or logic or in ourselves or in propositions or in statements or in doctrine or dogma. It's in a living person, Jesus Christ, and all that he is and all that he represents. So for the Christian... Reason doesn't begin and end with oneself, but with ourselves. It finds its home in the very word that became flesh. Faith is not in philosophy, doctrine, statements, but in the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Revelation is the key to knowing, understanding, certainty, and assurance. It's what God's revealed to us. The Bible reveals to us that God has created the heavens and the earth. He's entered into our creation, and he transcends it. He's active in it, and he alone is in a position to make statements of absolute truth. So all of man's knowledge and truth and understanding is uncertain until and unless it's measured against God's truth. So the fundamental question is how do you know? And apart from God's revelation all our knowledge is only tentative. It's just speculation. But measured against God's revelation our knowledge is valid. Now we may not know or understand everything. That's fine. But we can make sure that we can be sure that that what God has revealed to us is true and it's trustworthy because he and he alone is the only one who can ultimately say it's true. How do you know? Because of Jesus. Who do people say that I am? Hmm. John the Baptist come back from the dead? Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the other prophets? But who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Father, for for the truth, we give you thanks. We think of you as the way, and we think of you as the life, but we don't often stop to think about you as the truth. And so all of our knowledge has to be measured against you. Everything that we know, everything that we believe, everything that we think we know or believe has to be measured against you and your word. For only that is ultimately true. And you have proven it. And now you ask us for the relationship. Not just information, but a relationship. Who do you say that Jesus is? And do you believe that enough to follow him? To commit your life to him? Ah, there's the question. And the answer to how do you know? Thank you, Father, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much. Thank